Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Hey friends, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. My name is Ben Hardman. I am one of your co-hosts today from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I'm here with uh, co-founder, friend, buddy, uh, wisdom seeker Ben Sternkey, who is in Fishers, Indianapolis, <laughs> yeah. Indiana area. Yeah, I am. I am here. I am here. It's the two Bens on the You're podcast here. today. Yes, the two Bens today. Yep. Uh, no Matt Tebby today. Nope. So there will be a lot less words that you have to look up in the dictionary uh, today. <laughs> uh, but right. it will be a, a fun time. And we're joined today by uh, my good friend Jim Lyon. Uh, Jim is the general director of the Church of God in Anderson, Indiana. Um, he is, uh, I believe, he's the Malcolm Gladwell of the church. He is oh. the he is the Pope Uh-oh. of Anderson, Indiana, uh, and he's actually my first boss in ministry. Uh, so, Jim, we're so glad that you're here, man. <laughs> so glad to be with you, Ben. Uh, the two Bens, thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah. So, Jim, uh, when I was 20 years old and I sat in your office, <laughs> what yes. was it that made you think, I want to hire this guy? In spite of the dementia I now experience, I do remember <laughs> that. And uh, Ben was a student at Anderson University. I pastored a church nearby, and uh, he showed up. Uh, ben, I was very impressed with you from day one. Part of it is just your personal uh, presentation. You're easy to talk to, you're approachable, you're accessible, and don't have any sense of being too full of yourself. That's no small thing for uh, some people who are very gifted. You are, and I was impressed from the start by that. And then yeah. the other thing I have to say about Ben Hartman is uh, as long as I've known you, uh, and again, introduced as a college student, you had a a spiritual thirst. You wanted to do God's work. You wanted to be the guy that God was using. And uh, your original draw to youth ministry, which is where we hired you onto the church, was really about life change. It was about setting trajectory for whole lifetimes. And uh, you're wearing some different hats now, but I think that same spirit is in you. Uh, thanks, Jim. You're my favorite guest already. Yeah. Uh, we're just now, gonna, and now you know why Ben wanted to have Jim on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, Jim, you're uh, the way that your family cared for me and took care of me. I was always in your home having meals, hanging out with your kids. Uh, the, the discipleship posture that you took with me is something that I am eternally grateful for. 
uh, and for putting up with me when I was a 20 year old and knew nothing about ministry. And all I wanted to do was play basketball with children. I think that's what I wanted to do all the time. I was, I was much better at basketball than them because I was 20 and they were 12. Uh, and so that's, that's how youth ministry took place for me. You know, I just have to say, I was a pastor for 40 years and there were a lot more hires that were difficult than you. (laughs) no problem handling you you were good awesome well jim tell us about your role at the church of god and tell us about the church of god kind of as a denomination as a movement uh kind of in general right now where are you guys at what's happening uh what are the great things that are happening what are the challenges well the church of god is a voluntary association of about 2100 churches in the united states and canada right now We have uh, three times as many churches in 92 other countries around the world. Uh, When I say it's a voluntary association, it means we're congregationally formed. So uh, when we talk about structures or denomination or organizational motifs, uh, we're simply able to persuade only. We have no leverage with our local churches. We only have relationships. Maybe that sets us up well to think about discipleship because we're not able to exercise any kind of hierarchical authority. Uh, That said, we are bound together by a commonly held set of ideas that are born in the 19th century that are actually part of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. So we're very close in our theology to other groups like the Salvation Army, the Church of the Nazarene, the Free Methodist, the Wesleyan Church, the Missionary Church, and so on. Uh, My privilege now, having been called out of the local parish ministry, is to, in a way, kind of pastor this tribe. And uh, it's got its challenges because I don't have access every week as I did when I was a local church pastor. But by the same token, it has many similar dynamics because uh, in a way I'm shepherding, trying to help people move from A to B. And that's what a local church pastor does. And that's what we do in our individual lives. I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do is to be on the move, so to speak, closer to his will and way. That's a lifetime. That's what our churches are struggling with. That's what our pastors struggle with. That's what we individually struggle with. Yeah, that's so, good. To your question about, you know, what am I excited about? One great thing about the Church of God is because every pastor has terrific freedom to pursue his sense or her sense of the Lord's leading, uh, the Spirit's leading. And so there's a lot of uh, room to maneuver, to have elasticity, to adapt to a very rapidly changing world. So that's also the good, but of course, a strength can be a weakness. So even as you have that freedom, that autonomy, you can also find yourself out there by yourself, maybe uh, needing some support and not realizing that until it's too late. So we have both ends of those continuum. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, uh, Go ahead, Ben. I was just going to ask you, Jim, um, that, that idea that you don't have hierarchical control uh, uh, you called it leverage, um, is fascinating to me because I think one of, the, one of the struggles that I've heard a lot from our listeners, uh, from our community, is, is the question sometimes, that they, they've got these visions of you know, changing their church or becoming more focused on discipleship or trying to you know, live on mission together and that kind of a thing, and they, um, they sort of, uh, the, the first instinct is oftentimes the question, how do I get my people to blank? And um, there's, there's oftentimes behind that this idea that, like, I've, I've got to coerce, I've got to exercise some leverage, I've got to make this change happen. What have you learned from this place of explicitly saying, uh, we don't have hierarchical control? Like, what have you learned about affecting change in people, in organizations, you know, in the church, 
uh, when you uh, when you come into it with with kind of open hands like that and saying like I'm not going to force you, I can't force you to do anything. How do, how do you instigate and facilitate change in that kind of an environment? It's a great question, and it's one uh, that I'm wrestling with right at the minute because something I've always believed, I realize I haven't always practiced. That is, you cannot you cannot persuade anyone to do anything until they believe you love them first. Hmm. So that relational foundation of proving your love is the necessary predicate to affect any kind of transformational change. As a local church pastor, I understood that. And I think that my ministry, to the extent it had any success, was that people believed I loved them. Even if I, if I was foolish or maybe didn't have all the wisdom in the minute, they believed fundamentally that I loved them. And that made them trust me in a position where I might throw out an idea for change. In my present post, where I don't have so much immediate contact with my congregation, so to speak, I assumed people would know that I loved them. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I've realized, oh, no, they didn't get that because there's all kinds of baggage about denominational hierarchies and positions and people have trust issues that I'm learning I've had. I have to spend more time proving my love. But no matter what the dynamic, your, your, your starting place is, how do I love somebody? And how do I show them I love them? Hmm. And until that's established, there's really no hope of persuading people to to move anywhere or to abandon what they know as familiar. Yeah. I think that's a Jesus deal too. I mean, if you look at Jesus, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what he did. And, you know, in the church of God, we are, we are using a vocabulary that I introduced five years ago and it's taking some root and that is Jesus is the subject. Yeah. So in every question, it has to be, well, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus live? How do I get into the head of Jesus? Or maybe better said, how do I allow him to get in my head mm -hmm. to replicate his ministry? So if I look at Jesus' influence, how did he get those guys uh, to get in a boat and sail to the other side of the lake? Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, really to a, a far side, something they wouldn't normally have done to a culture that was not familiar to them, blah, blah, blah. How did he do that? Well, he loved them. They knew that he loved them. And so they got in the boat. They sailed. Yes. So it's less of a uh, practical, it's not a pragmatic solution to a problem. Oh, people need to think I love them, you know? <laughs> so how can I convince well, them of that? Like, no, you actually have to love them. them. How can right, I trick right. them into believing I love them? <laughs> right, right. Okay. No, you actually love them, and in so doing, you are participating in the ministry of Jesus. You're participating in the life of God, and that is, uh, th then the byproduct of that life is transformation, is change. Um, yeah, I love that. Jesus is the I, subject. I heard a, I mean, it's just a, taking it a step farther. Someone told me once when I was a young pastor that a church could never grow past its pastor. Hmm. I really resisted that concept for a long time because I just didn't feel like it was fair to make so much of what I interpreted at first to be personality-driven ministry. Uh. I, just, I thought, no, no, this can't be about me. But what I've learned is it's actually true in the sense of, it's not necessarily about my ego. It's just that if I'm not growing, if I'm not loving, if I'm not reaching, if I'm not sacrificing, if I'm not more intimate in my walk with Christ, the church can never go past me. Yeah. So in a way, I am a gatekeeper, whether I like it or not. And wherever you are in leadership, nobody that is following you or that you want to follow you can move past you. So that means you have to understand your own heart and you have to love yourself before you can love others. I mean, all those things that maybe we talk about, we actually have to experience. And in ministry, uh, 
back to the original question. Hmm. If we are not able to demonstrate our love and actually experience that love for the people we want to influence, we can only temporarily impact them. Yeah, it's very good. And there's, there's something really beautiful about that, too. Uh, it feels like in our culture right now, we have a lack of imagination as to how we lead without power or how we lead without authority or how we lead without that hierarchical system or structure. And, and I think we're seeing the result of that in the American church in a lot of different ways where we're seeing power used in divisive ways. And we're seeing leaders who are having to step down because of power issues and because of control issues. Uh, and so there's a, there's a submission and surrender uh, and a love that actually guides our, our, our leadership, which transforms the way we think about leadership. So one of the principles that we talk about often, Jim, is that uh, corporate transformation will, will always come after individual transformation. That if you, if you want your congregation to be transformed, the change has to start with you. And so leaders, leaders go first, right? And so what God wants to do through you, he first wants to do in you. Uh, that's one of our missional axioms that we teach about. So for you, as you're, as you're looking at thousands of churches kind of all over the world and trying to get them on the same page, trying to give them some language, uh, trying to love them well, what are some of the like intentional practices that you guys are leaning into to lead well in this season? Well, I wish I could say I, I, I've got a, a book of great ideas and anecdotes demonstrated by my experience, but I don't have that because I'm still learning as I go. So let me just say, hmm. I can tell you what we're trying to do. Uh, and in some places it works, in some places not so much. But fundamentally, trying to reorient the church to Jesus. Because uh, church is often the subject and, and Jesus is the subject. So, I mean... It seems so rudimentary, but I have to say it over and over again. If people are in right relationship to Jesus, the church will be fine. But you can have a church without people being in right relationship to Jesus. So how do we make Jesus at the fore? And how does the persona of Jesus, the reality of a living Jesus, define what we do and how we are? And to your point there, Ben, uh, it starts with a leader. I have to live that way. I have to experience Jesus in a dynamic, intimate, transformational relationship before I can ever persuade someone else to try and get there. I just, uh, the, I, I just spoke at a convention, one of our, uh, in Eastern Canada, uh, we, have, we have 48 jurisdictions in the United States of Canada. And so at one of those, I spoke at their annual convention just last week near Toronto. And I was speaking from the Gospel of John, walked through the Gospel of John in several different messages. At the end of the convention, I landed at the resurrection. What a great story. But I remember just a few days ago, speaking out loud, and as I was speaking it, I think preachers sometimes get this. God was speaking to me. I was articulating for a crowd, but it, he was reminding me, if Jesus is alive, well then, I shouldn't be afraid. If Jesus is alive, well then, a justice can prevail. If Jesus is alive, well then, I've got hope. If Jesus is alive, well, then my life isn't defined just in the moment. I mean, there's so many things that flow out of that. Easter is not just a, a day in the year. It's a way of life. So how do we transform churches? How do we lead them? It's so to the core. How do we make Jesus at the center of what we're doing? Would Jesus really be sweating out the drum kit 
Is that really uh, what he'd be talking about? What is pulse be going fast? Here's another way I, I try and articulate this to uh, my brothers and sisters. Take the pulse of Jesus. What does his pulse indicate to you? If you could imagine what makes his blood run fast. Now, in, as I'm asking myself that question, because I'm, I'm on the growing edge uh, for myself, what makes Jesus' blood run fast? What elevates his pulse? That should be the way I live. When I'm separated from my wife for a long time, uh, I've just been on the road for two weeks. I, I was in Japan and Korea before I went to Canada. Uh, you know, getting on the plane and knowing that I'm going to land at home and see my wife, my blood runs fast. I, I'm excited about that. I'm anticipating good things. I mean, that's life. What does Jesus anticipate? What's he looking for? What gives him the buzz? Mm. Alternatively, my blood, my blood also runs fast when I see injustice. When something is wrong, someone has been wronged. Something outrageous has occurred, and you know the devil is out of his way. Man, my pulse quickens because I want to get in the game. I want to fight for the right. Hmm. At both experiences, our pulses quicken. Now, what I'm learning is my pulse is, is beating fast for a lot of stuff that probably doesn't elevate the pulse of Jesus. Back to the drum kit or whatever the debate is right. about whether the choir should wear robes, should we have a choir? What's the name on the church? What's the meeting time? There are a lot of things that have consequence at a level, but they're not things worth elevating my blood pressure. Yeah. What does Jesus get elevated by? That then changes the focus of my ministry. Mm -hmm. That means I need to be in the game to fight for the right, not so much just to survive, which a lot of our churches are in that groove of how do we survive as if, the survival of our institution was for why Jesus went to a cross. No, he died so that people could have eternal life. He died so that the kingdom could, could advance. He, he died so that heaven could take back what hell has stolen in individual souls, in creation, in our social fabric. There's so many ways in which yeah. that can play out, yeah. but it has to go back to, People starting with the question of Jesus hmm. and experiencing his own pulse, so to speak. Yeah. So, Jim, I, I hear you saying that one of the practices, if we're trying to get practical, like one of the practices then is, is changing the conversation for, for a leader to say, I'm not going to just try to mitigate the arguments that come to me at the level that they come to me. I'm not just going to try to make everybody happy. I'm not going to try to pick the perfect service time that everybody's going to be happy with or the perfect style of worship that everybody's going to be happy with. Instead, when those arguments come, and they will come, because people have preferences and they, you know... But the reason you're a leader is that your job in that moment is to elevate the conversation to a different level. Not that it's... I mean, you have to pick a time to meet, sure. You know, you have to decide if you're going to have drums or not, sure. But, but the job of the leader is to, is to reframe, we could say, to reframe these arguments, reframe these conversations and say, actually, uh, remember, this is what we're doing together as a church. We're not just fighting for our preferences. We're following Jesus. Is that, that's kind of what exactly. you're saying, yeah? Yeah, reframe exactly. it. Wisdom is knowing what the questions are. Right. <laughs> and most of us get on rabbit trails because we're not really focused on the right questions, and a leader should help frame the question, not necessarily even give the answer. Exactly. But bring the question. Now, you know, your, your comment there, Ben, just reminded me of my friend Reggie McNeil. I don't know if you guys know Reggie, but uh, Reggie is somebody I consider a friend, and he's spoken into my life in powerful ways. When I first took my job, he reminded me of some things that I had heard from him before, but boy, sank in now for the first time. He said, if you want to effect transformation, here's the three things. One, 
you have to change the conversation. And in my context, I'm interpreting that in ways, changing the vocabulary even, changing what the questions are, but the conversation has to be altered. Then you change what are the metrics of success? Because once the conversation has changed, then the measurements, what you celebrate has to change. And of course, you know, in church life that I grew up in, the measure of success was how many people were in the Sunday school roster. We had the Sunday school contest. Did the, the third grade boys Sunday school class get more new kids than, you know, and there's, of course, there's motivation in that, in that cycle because we care about people, every number is a person and their souls. And right, I, right. I understand all that, but is that really the ultimate metric? Uh, how many people came to hear the singing Christmas tree? Our metrics have to change yeah. to, I've, in my context, to be salt and light. It's not necessarily how many people, is how broad and deep is the influence. Now, that yeah. can be equated to an audience. The larger the audience, the more influence you have. But in the end, is real life change measured by how many people came to the Christmas program? So the, what we celebrate becomes changed and then once the conversation changes and the metrics of what we celebrate change or or the definition of success changes then that has to be translated to the next tier of leadership transformation starts mm -hmm. with you getting the conversation right you start thinking about the metrics right how do you get that to the next tier by modeling and experiencing it yourself and you know mcneil i think is spot on and that's the process that i hope that the church of god is experiencing yeah, that's beautiful, Jim. And I, I, I've actually just been, as we've worked with you guys, I, I've seen the way that language has created culture for you guys and the way that you guys are changing the conversation and bringing about different language is actually changing and transforming the leaders that we're coaching from the Church of God. And uh, so just to affirm what you're saying, we're seeing that happen with the leaders that we're yeah. coaching on the ground, and it's really been beautiful to be a part of. It feels like so much of leadership really is discernment. So it's a discernment on what are the conversations that we need to engage in. And so right now in culture, there, there, it feels like uh, outrage has become a spiritual value. Uh, there, are, there are so many justice issues and there's so many things that, uh, that people in my church personally want me to speak out on uh, that I could spend every week of the year just speaking on something culturally that's happening. Uh, and so how do you discern, because I feel like you guys have navigated this so well in the last year, how do you discern what do you speak out on and when do you, you stay silent? That's a great question, and I, I concur with you that we are living in a very tumultuous time. And uh, I'm an old guy. I'm 66 years old, but I cannot remember a time in my lifetime when churches are being so dramatically divided on political and social issues. Uh, there's always been tension, of course, in, in, in our world, but it just seems like the body of Christ itself now is kind of in the throes of division, maybe not since the Civil War when whole bodies of believers were divided on the questions they're raised. That said, it is important that we navigate this correctly because one of our big generational challenges seemed to me is the church's perceived sac uh, uh, lack of relevancy. So when the church avoids the hard questions of the world around us, it feeds the narrative that we're really removed in a kind of monastic society uh, divorced from reality. And, and for a new generation especially coming up, that simply is not going to work because I think there is a stirring 
in in a generation or two about making a difference in constructive and holistic ways and not drawn to institutional life and preservation. And that that requires us uh, as leaders in the church to think carefully, but also to engage intentionally the big issues of our time. Right. So what so then the problem becomes people are of different minds about that. It's not so simple as just saying, well, I'll be the articulate voice for a unified body that believes that <laughs> right. this needs to happen. No, our own churches are being uh, torn asunder. I have a young pastor, for instance, uh, in the lower Midwest who's written me lately, and he said, you know, Jim, I, I don't know what to do. Help me navigate this, guys in his early 30s. He's saying, uh, my church is divided on immigration. Uh, I, every Sunday, uh, and it's, he's got a congregation of 150, 200 people. He said, every Sunday I come to church and, and there's this like undertone. There's just like this anger. There's this like edge. People are civil to each other. They're friendly. Let's have a cup of coffee together. But in a way, he says, I know the church is divided. And so it's an undertone. I'm trying to talk to them about the gospel, but their minds are preoccupied and they're fighting battles in their own heads with each other about immigration policy. What do I do? How do I bridge the divide? How do I bring this church into some kind of harmony on something that is such a provocative issue? Oh, wow, there's a there's a tough one. My best reply to him, and as we have put our toes in the water of what I'll call uh, articulating voice for the gospel in a secular or a public square, uh, is to go back to Jesus. Again, it sounds almost so redundant. It's the Sunday school right. answer, right? So what would Jesus do here? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. I, I was asked, uh, and just to help you understand a little bit of my context, so I have a 24-member governing board. They represent the church uh, in the U.S. and Canada, coast to coast, different ages, different ethnicities, different perspectives. That's my governing board. I report to them. I went to them and said, I think we have to be more engaged as a movement, as a people. Uh, in the public square, uh, but we, we don't have a history of that. The Church of God, when it first began late in the 1800s, was apolitical to the place that it discourages people from voting. The reason being that the world is corrupt, and when you vote, you just soil your hands. Uh, that was not uncommon in the holiness churches of the late 19th century, early 20th century, but all of that is out of the water now. People are voting, but but that I'm just saying that that strain of us is just keep quiet about those issues. But on the other hand, we're people who believe in individual holiness. We're a holiness tradition that the Holy Spirit can possess you and give you power to do things you could never do by yourself. Another sidebar. I'm trying to encourage our people. You've got experience the Holy Spirit. Can't just talk about it hmm. uh, until until the pastor gets that. It's not going to happen in the pew. But anyway, the Holy Spirit's going to provide individual holiness. We're all big on individual holiness, but there's another step to that holiness uh, theology, and that is individual holiness should inevitably produce social holiness. If, if we're really empowered by the Holy Spirit, if we're possessed by the Holy Spirit, we can't simply be isolated. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're salt and light. These are influence agents. That's the kingdom way. So back to Jesus, how do I get my pastors, in this case, this young pastor, say, how do I respond to that? Well, I went to my board of directors. They said, you've got a three officers. They appointed a committee of three. These are elected by our national church. Work with them uh, to have discernment. So 
my first practical response to your question after that long setup. Now you're glad. Now, now Ben's remembering. No, I, I remember now why to, I don't want to work with that guy. All <laughs> why we, why we had, why we had long, longish staff meeting. That's right. That's right. Because a, a, a yes or no question turned into a 10 minute. But yeah. well, this is great, Jim. That's, I'm learning from that's you. good. First, it's good leadership. You're reframing. Don't wait, <laughs> don't wait into the public square alone. Hmm. Make sure that you have some wise, respected heads who are standing with you. The pastor or whoever that leader is, is going to have a voice and be the voice. But don't do it without deliberately engaging some people you trust, but who are also trusted by your, your constituent base to have wisdom. So in my case, back to the whole immigration thing, my three officers who are two African-American pastors and a white guy, uh, these three said, Jim, we need to say something about the separation of children at the border as an immigration policy, because as we all know, that's been much of the news in the last 90 days. And so get your pen out, Jim. See what you can do with that. <laughs> okay. That, I, I mean, I sweat blood over it because I understand the dynamics of the issue, but I had to come back to Jesus. And so does Jesus speak about immigration policy? Directly, no. Well, all right, is there a principle in scripture that I can deduce that can inform me on this question? Well, what? And I, I went all the way back to the golden rule. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. This is a predicate of kingdom life. Jesus said it is the sum of the law and the prophets. Now, let's make the argument that treating people the other, the way you, others the way you want to be treated, how does that translate into an immigration policy? How does that translate into separating children, minor children from their parents who have crossed a line without documentation? Well, I didn't make the case that we shouldn't have immigration law. I didn't make the case that we shouldn't reform our immigration policy. I didn't make any case except on this point, can anyone suggest to me that they have evidence in the body of Christ that Jesus thinks your best game <laughs> is to separate families? This is the way to go forward. I don't think that case can be made. The case then is not being made, whether it's a Democrat or public issue. It's not, I didn't mention the president or his mm -hmm. acolytes or his opposition in the Congress. Mm -hmm. Our question is, as a people of God, what would Jesus suggest to us through the golden rule? Mm -hmm. And can you feel comfortable making the case? I really think that is supporting separating these children. Nobody can make that case. Right. So how do we wade into the public square without becoming partisan, but still being faithful. Yes. Similarly at Charlottesville, I was asked to make a statement. And what I did was I, I went back in history and, and provided context. Uh, how do we defer to one another? I, I, I don't want to just go over all those issues with you. I'm just saying, get a group of people that you trust mm -hmm. to tell you, yes, it's appropriate to speak on this one. Yeah. Then get into your head. What is Jesus doing? What would he say? How do he work? How do I avoid becoming a partisan hack and not making it personal, but yeah. respectfully engaging the debate to bring people to a place where they have clarity of conscience. One other thing I'll say uh, in terms of our time, the tenor of our time is angry. So people are angry. And I don't think anger hmm. is necessarily the best face of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Anger at outrageous crime, yes, Things that irrefutably is wicked, yes, but most political questions don't fall in that category. 
Yeah. So diffusing anger in our public statements can also make us more credible and heard. That's that's Ben Sturkey's dog getting on the call also, and he is very, he's very angry right now speaking about of outrage. multiple issues. Apparently, speaking What's of the outrage, dog's name is it Edie? Edie, is that the dog's yeah. name? Edith. Speaking of outrage, somebody just walked past our house, so that and, that's and what's so going Edith, on in my house Edith right is now. Fired up. All right. Yeah. Sturkey, mute yourself. I'm trying to. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, but so that's so good, Jim, and and so so helpful because I, I see a lot of like on Twitter or social media, somebody that will make a statement like, if you're not preaching on this, this weekend, then you're a terrible pastor or you're not doing the right thing. Or, and, and it's almost as if people are trying to shepherd everybody's church without knowing the local context, without being in relationship with those people in that place. And so it does take a level of deep discernment, of discerning who are my people, how do I love them well, how do I guide them and shepherd them and direct them, mm-hmm. uh, how do I not like, overpower them uh, with intellect or with knowledge or with any of these things, but how do I graciously invite them into the conversation? And so um, yeah. thank you so much for, one, the way that you're modeling this with your all's movement and for the courage that you guys have stepped into, because I know those conversations, many of them have not been easy for you. Uh, and thank you for modeling a posture in that. I think that's really significant. Mm-hmm. We talk all the time about there's ways that we can get the paradigm right but the posture wrong. We get the answers correct, but we don't have the love of Jesus in the way that we present ourselves or in the way that we dialogue with each other or the way that we mm-hmm. enter into the conversation and we completely miss the boat yeah. uh, when we do that. So Jim, yeah. I just want to thank you so much. Um, hey, thank you for that. your, well, thank you for your relationship with me. Uh, I, I really, I'm, I'm not, exaggerating things when I say uh, I I look back over my time in ministry and there's certain landmarks and places where I just say I am so grateful uh, that I was able to serve in that place and serving with you and and falling under your leadership and learning from you is one of those landmarks that created me, made me the leader that I am today. And so I'm incredibly thankful for that. And then just thankful for the way that you're engaging these issues, the way that you're modeling this at large, uh, for the American church. So just one last question, anything that you would say, Jim, just to, just to pastors in our culture right now, younger pastors who are, who are navigating all these things, any, any final statement for them or final word of wisdom from them? Well, maybe, uh, where we started, Ben, thanks for all that. Uh, you have to prove your love to people. And Ben Hardman, you know this, I went to law school and boy, I can get in a gear where I can press an argument. I can win almost every case. I've had to learn not to argue cases I can't win, but when I do argue them, I win. But you can win the argument and still lose the crowd. And that brings us back to the loving, just to to all of us. How do we prove our love? How do people know they can trust us because we love them above being right Hmm. uh, in our own ego? And that is a key to all leadership, it seems to me. It's something I'm still trying to polish in my life but I know it's the best way forward. 
Yeah. Thanks so much, Jim. This has been great. Uh, we need to have you back at some point and uh, continue this conversation and uh, dig in a little deeper. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if, uh, if there are uh, comments that you want to leave or questions that you have, yeah. concerns or challenges, anything that you want to talk to us about, you can email us. Where do they email us, Ben? Podcast at gravityleadership.com. That's there you where go. they email us. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and if you're enjoying the podcast, it does really help us. If wherever you're getting your podcast, you just leave a rating uh, and tell us, uh, hey, we like this because that helps other people find us and connect to us and connect to our ministry. Uh, yep. Any final thoughts, Ben? Anything? No, I just I really appreciate uh, everything that uh, you've kind of gone over uh, with us, uh, Jim. I feel like it was, uh, it was kind of a masterclass of you uh, reframing questions kind of in the way that you say that leaders should be reframing questions. It was really good. It was uh, really, uh, really helpful for me. Um, kind of ele- elevating the conversation. Um, the one thing I'm taking away is uh, when we're speaking out on these issues or, or however we want to talk about that, um, there's this elevation of the conversation from the the binary that American politics tells us we have to have, right? So Jesus, whose side is Jesus on? You know, and we've got this binary, but the key, I think, to really following Jesus is to is to realize Jesus doesn't exist on that binary. Like it's something completely different. It's a third way that that Jesus calls us into. And so I love the way that you uh, helped to reframe uh, the the way that you walked us through that, uh, how you reframed that specific issue uh, that you talked us through with the separating families of the uh, of immigrants. So. Hey, appreciate that thanks to gravity for what you guys do we love and respect your contribution also thanks yeah. for working with us yeah yeah yep. good times and thanks for being with us guys <laughs> uh, we will see you next week peace thanks for joining us for this episode of the gravity leadership podcast if you found it helpful please let us know by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com to ask a question or suggest a topic for a future episode. And join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful in our work as local pastors and practitioners of discipleship and mission. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.